Good day, leaders, educators. Uh, welcome to Leader Chat. I'm Jeff Rose, and we're about to have a really interesting conversation. This uh, book that I'm going to introduce is one that was recently brought to my attention. And my, my first thought or assumption about this book and the content is actually not what transpired for me. I was um, what I described pleasantly surprised, not because of the topic, but because the way um, this, the, the way the book brought forward a really important discussion in education that I believe isn't happening. And that has to do with data and looking at data and looking at research and how to navigate that. That may seem like a hard topic to focus on in this day and age because of the chaotic state in education. But I will tell you that um, the, the author we're going to be talking with really helps break this down in her new book, which I'm going to describe. So today we are talking with Nora Gordon. Now, Nora recently wrote Common Sense Evidence. And let me give a quick bio of Nora and tell you a little bit about also her writing partner. And then we'll bring Nora to the conversation and we'll delve in. And like I said, if you are an educator that one, you value data and research, or potentially you value it and you're having a hard time focusing on it, this is the discussion that you should listen to and you will see why. Now, Nora Gordon is a professor at Georgetown U University's McCourt School of Public po Policy. She's a research associate for the National Bureau of Economic Research, non-resident fellow of the Urban Institute, a member of the Future Ed Advisory Board. Her research evaluates how federal and state policies and programs affect K-12 educational opportunities and outcomes. She has served on the Institute of Education Sciences expert panel on the study of Title I formula and DC's State Title I Committee of Practitioners, nor as a former associate editor of the Journal of Education Finance and Policy. She currently serves on the Professional Advisory Board of the National Center for Learning Disabilities and is a consultant to the National Student Support Accelerator. She is the co-author of Common Sense Evidence, which we're going to be delving into today, the Education Leader's Guide to Using Data and Research. Nora lives in Chevy Chase, Maryland, with her husband, three sons, and a dog. Now, Carrie Conaway is a senior lecturer. She also wrote this with Nora, senior lecturer on education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, where she teaches students on how to use evidence to improve organizations and how to interpret data effectively. The same still is covered in this book. Now, Carrie was scheduled to be with us. She is not able to be with us. We're going to carry on, and uh, I'm excited to really jump in with Nora. So, uh, Nora, welcome to Leader Chat, and I'm thrilled that you're here. And what did I miss? I just read part of the bio, but I mean, maybe tell us more about yourself or what brought you into this work in the first place. Uh, so, how have you been? And tell us about yourself. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. It's it's great to be here, and thank you for your lovely intro and kind words about the book. Um, let's see, what else can I tell you about myself? I am uh, 
sitting here in my attic where uh, I've, I've been <laughs> for a lot of time. I actually spent a lot of time here before COVID also, but it's been great for me to be back in the classroom, um, back with my students. I teach MPP students at Georgetown. And it's also been really great for me to have my kids back in their classrooms too. Um, and how, uh, how old are your kids? My kids are nine, 12 and 15. Oh yeah, that's, that's a busy house. It's a busy house. That's a busy house. Yeah, I, I, have, I have two and um, the thought of any more is overwhelming to me. So congratulations, well done. Uh, thank you, I have a, a lot of good help with them. And honestly, when they were not in school, which was for a long time, I felt very lucky that there were three of them to be with each other. So I, I read your bio on, on the things that you're currently doing and have recently done. But maybe just backtrack a little bit. Like, what what brought you into this field and this focus? Because you clearly have an expertise and and a niche. But you know, uh, you probably weren't thinking about this years and years ago. So, what was the initial story that kind of pushed you into this focus? Yeah, um, I came to this work. I never really know if I was an economist first or I was interested in education first. I love thinking like an economist. I, I like thinking about problem solving and being really pragmatic. Um, but I also am kind of an optimist and I, I want to make the world a better place. Uh, but um, which, you know, your membership is doing and I am feel like often feel like I'm more watching from the sidelines. I went into research because I thought that research would help improve things. And then, you know, just over the course of my career, this disconnect between research and practice, which, um, you know, people talk about a lot. <clears throat> Researchers talk about a lot because I feel like most people who go into research, you know, kind of went into it because they, they were hoping that it would have an application that would really help improve things. So kind of both through thinking about as a researcher, why isn't, you know, my research more applied? Why isn't all of the great research I see the field producing getting put into practice? And then also really through my teaching um, and teaching my MPP students how to find research, how to understand it, um, how to use data, how to make their own research that really kind of brought me to this work. I, I would always assign a project. I teach different education policy electives, but whatever the elective is, it would always be kind of centered around a project that the student would choose the topic. And I would say, find you know an applied problem, a policy problem or a problem of practice. And our students are great. They have really interesting work experience or they're doing internships. So they would come up with great questions. And but then part of the project was you're going to go and find research about this so that sure. you can write a memo and have a bit of a literature review. And I found myself always telling them to change their topics. Uh, and that was kind of a warning sign for me about <laughs> maybe this isn't the best assignment to be giving them um, because the problems that they're coming up with are real problems. But the research that's out there, or at least the research that I would think of as an academic, as research, or kind of what works clearinghouse style research, isn't speaking to those questions. So that really kind of brought me to this. Now, you, you have this, you know, partner in crime, so to speak, right, who wasn't able to be with us, uh, Carrie. And um, maybe, maybe tell us, let's talk about her behind her back for a minute. Sure. What, uh, 
How did you and Carrie come together to write this book? Is it that you know, you're just in the same circles and you engage, or what's, what's the story behind the two of you coming together and partnering up on this book? Well, this is fun to talk about in her absence because- uh, Yeah, you can Carrie say whatever you want. Yep, great, I'll just let her rip. Um, I mean, she has, a, she has a great sense of humor, so she'll be good with this. Uh, we met as graduate students um, and, and she actually left, as we were doing our PhDs, I was in economics and she was doing a sociology and social policy PhD at Harvard, and we were in this interdisciplinary program, which she left because she decided that she wanted to be working in practice. She wanted to actually be doing things and kind of what she was seeing um, of the academy was making her think that it was a bit too removed from practice. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she'll agree with that characterization, but she's not here to stop me. So right. let's, let's go with that. Um, but then she went on to, uh, to work as a researcher, really, um, which, you know, it's good proof. You don't need a PhD to do a lot of research. And uh, and so she uh, wound up working for the state of Massachusetts and their Department of Elementary and Secondary Education um, as a research director, the first person in that position at a time when many states did not have research directors. Uh, and so she, she was doing the stuff that we described in the book, um, you know, in in a state agency. Uh, And we kept in touch through conferences and stuff like that. And when I decided um, that I really wanted to write this type of book for an audience that is, this is why I'm so excited to be here talking with you, Jeff, because your audience is exactly the audience we want for this book. We don't want to tell academics how to write things differently. We want to help um, people who could be benefiting from using research in their leadership, understand you know, how to get in there. Um, so anyway, I thought, okay, I need someone who is more in the field. Uh, and also I just wanted to work with Carrie because I love working with her. So that, that was oh, how we came I thought, to be. I thought your characterization of Carrie was very tame. I can't imagine <laughs> she would be offended by that. So um, there's a right, as I mentioned to you earlier, and I'll describe as, as we talk, I was, I was pleasantly surprised. So uh, I, was, I was pleasantly surprised because I think um, my assumption when I thought about research and using data was one thing based upon you know, my past experiences, right? I've gone through school, I have a doctorate in educational leadership and so forth. So. Um, well, I, I saw this, the concept of data and research through a particular lens, but I was surprised in the way that you and Carrie laid this out and pleasantly so. So one, on the first, on the, in the introduction, it says the reduced role of frontline educators in uh, informing educational practice and policy is bad news for students because only by testing ideas and learning from the results can organizations improve over time? And so I, I 100% agree with that. I was still so curious about how the rest of the book would go to, to help with that, which, which I definitely think it did. So you and Carrie must have been as really intentional from the very beginning on, we're gonna produce a, a guide for leaders so that 
they can actually focus on their own data and information and navigate the reams of information that are at our fingertips. Uh, because in my opinion, it just does that so well. So that must have been from the very beginning, we're gonna make a guide for educators that makes it pragmatic. Am I on the right track? Because that's how it came across to me. Yeah, two, we, we really had two goals. One was exactly what you said, that's pragmatic. But the other was, we felt like the book needed to kind of motivate the use of research and data because so often you see um, research that is not relevant or data being used in ways that are not for learning, but are for something else. Um, and, you know, and so we wanted to generate, I want to say an authentic demand, but that's really what it is. We wanted, um, people to see why this might be worth their time. And we know time is a very precious commodity and we're trying to make it like, how's, how can you get in and do a little bit? Um, but even so, you know, even if we were just asking for what we think of as kind of a bare minimum to get started with this, we knew that we needed to explain why it would uh, be useful in, in not in a compliance way, um, one title that we had for the book that is obviously not the ultimate title was making better bets. That was what we started with because thinking of why would you want to bother doing this? Well, you need to make a lot of decisions as a leader with lots of uncertainty. And so you're kind of gambling and you know that this is uh, research and data provide sources of information you can use to make the best bets you can. So kind of generating that kind of appreciation for um, why this might be worth your time and then providing this skill set um, or a toolbox to get in there and actually do some of the work. That's how we were thinking of it. Um, and then kind of from a marketing perspective, uh, coming after ESSA, we felt like, okay, maybe people are gonna come for the compliance and then stay for the authentic research use. Yeah, that was smart. And I, I, I loved the, the, the cases. Um, that you it created this narrative right so there's the the cases rebecca maria and Dwayne, right so you you take these cases these scenarios of those three have different experiences and therefore different lenses and um the way you kind of weave those narratives in was actually really helpful to to stay motivated throughout the process so wh where did where did that idea come up where'd you come up with that idea and how did you how did you focus on these three characters? Well, um, I'm I'm glad that you found that useful. And from the start, we knew we needed examples. Um, and we thought that, you know, the more we could have kind of threaded cases rather than, you know, just a bunch of totally separate examples, that would be useful to see how it plays out in practice, because, you know, the we say at some point, like the examples are not meant to be exemplars. They're meant to illustrate what might happen, how things don't go the way you plan, and you know just how you adapt in the process. Um, for us, it was a big question about uh, were we going to find real life cases versus these uh, kind of composite cases that are fictional and. For various reasons, you know, we wanted to show different perspectives, like a district versus school um, versus, you know, a teacher perspective. Um, and 
we had a lot of points that we wanted to make. And so, you know, by making up the case, we could kind of cram more in while still keeping the book short, which I feel is one of its greatest attributes. You know, um, when I when I was in the seat, the leadership seat, I used to, unfortunately, pride myself on um, my schedule, the, the amount I worked. Right? I, I wore it like a badge of honor, um, which, like I said, is unfortunate because it it's definitely doesn't help in a lot of ways. But I also left the leadership seat before COVID. And while during that time, some were able to take advantage and uh, kind of delve into reading once again and read X number of books and create goals on that, um, the educators, educational leaders, um, were not. It was the opposite for them. Right? Their, their lives were turned upside down. Their schedules were turned upside down. And unfortunately, I think it's a, it's a serious dilemma that educational leaders don't have the time and capacity for the kind of uh, critical thought and planning needed to focus on vision on behalf of their students and their communities. So I actually worry about their time and attention to focus on something as important as data and research. Are you seeing the same thing through your lens as kind of what I just described? I mean, what are you seeing out in the field? And maybe that's just the initial intent behind the book, but um, what do you see? Do you agree or disagree with, with my worry? Well, your worry, to be honest, was our worry even before COVID. Um, thinking that uh, from our perspective, you know, we've never led a district or led a school, but from what we know of the field, you know, the, the, there wasn't a ton of spare time before. Um, and th thinking about how does this fit in? Um, so that's really why we tried to make the recommendations really streamlined, uh, and, you know, find ways into it as integrated into the work as possible, which we know people often say, <laughs> uh, and, and doesn't wind up being true. We didn't want this to wind up as another thing that people have to do. We want it to, you know, sort of work into existing procedures, um, routines, but it's it's a real challenge. Uh, so we think that using evidence could potentially save time later. So that's that's the kind of irony here, but that it requires a little bit of this time upfront. And I mean, I'm sure that that's true of many planning things that don't involve data and research, and it's a real problem from always being in a crisis mode. Um, so it, we agree that that's a challenge. Um, and so I don't know if you know if it's something that people are doing anyway. If it's a feeling of well, we have to do professional development on something and maybe you don't like some of the other options maybe this is a way to fit things in or really i think um uh, what we've come to is that research professionals are very helpful to have in a district um and many districts have a research office and many districts don't um and and where there are research offices often they wind up actually not doing research, but more working with data for reporting and accountability. Yes. <laughs> um, and so, you know, like 
have a research staff, allow your research staff time to do research with, I'll say this, you know, up, up front with your imaginary resources, make this happen. That's the challenge. Well, let me, um, let me be transparent. And, and I, I've, I've worked in places that did have uh, re research resources at our fingertips with our, with our, with our own colleagues in the district. And um, I can tell you that many times I, I succumb to the pressure on directing them to produce information for a report that would go to either the board or the community to demonstrate um, our efforts, our improvement, or maybe even our lack thereof. But it was reporting. It wasn't researching. It, it, it wasn't trying to, to delve into the data to get to the right questions to produce our initiatives or actions. It was more to tell the story on what we had already done, if that makes any sense. And I, oh, I, it, I feel guilt about that. that. That is not what I meant at all. Oh, okay. Um, well, I that's, that's what an, I... I think that's an argument for a bigger research staff, because as a leader, you have to produce that kind of data. You know, you need to be able to tell that story. You need to be able to do the reporting. So uh, I didn't mean don't do that. But if, if that takes up all of the staff time, then it's harder to uh, be sort of generating, incorporating the research staff when you're kind of problem solving other things. Well, I think, I think it wasn't so much, um, I mean, it, those things are important, but what, what I could have done, what I, um, what I see some do is rather than just giving an answer, taking the time to investigate with questions and use data appropriately. So um, I, I, many times I think we did have appropriate staff or teams, but it's the way the leader directs them and sometimes slows down the process to be more efficient and focus later. Maybe to your earlier point, I think sometimes uh, leaders can just jump to the pressure of, well, let's, let's give the information as opposed to, well, let's, let's actually give a little more time and let's focus on a process and the questions before we provide pers perspective. And so yeah. anyway, reading, reading through this brought ideas that are maybe I'm you know, too little too late, but I think that that's why I was so surprised and impressed with how the book pushed me as an educator to think about the use of data at our fingertips. And there's a lot of it. Does that make sense? That does. And one other recommendation comes to mind around research staff, which is that, um, you know, if you're fortunate enough to have them and all of their time, you know, that there's a little extra time. Um, so you said that you didn't want to tell them what to do, but I think that you also don't want them to be by themselves siloed. And you really want the research staff to have an opportunity to interact with the program staff and know the know the program staff know the program areas um, so that they can be thinking about how they might be helpful so this this book and I'm, I'm i'm just kind of holding it up not as a prop just to show that i i really marked this thing up i you know earmarked it like my wife yells at me for by bending pages and so forth and the 
um, what I appreciated was that it really focused. So it almost provides like what I call it tips, advice, processes, roadmaps, protocols throughout. Um, for example, the uh, know when to find useful research fast. So I really appreciated that part because it, a lot of us are looking for research, but how do you, how do, you do that efficiently and quickly? So it was just uh, very pragmatic as we were describing before. What are you currently seeing in terms of how practitioners are using this book in the field? Yeah, um, that's a great question and one that we're constantly asking because, you know, we're, we're not there. Like the, the book is very spread out. We were excited to go into a second printing. So we're like, okay, someone's buying it. They're reading it. And then we hear from people who, you know, are in touch with us to tell us they like it, which is always great. Um, but that is a very small subset of people who have bought the book. So it's interesting to know how it's being used. I mean, I, we've spoken to uh, ed leadership classes that have been using the book in a higher ed setting. Um, and, you know, one interesting thing we've been working on lately is uh, something for a new course for knowledge brokers. I don't know if you've heard this term before, but this is a curriculum that, um, the Gates Foundation is funding, funding uh, let me get the acronym right, C-R-U-E, Center for Research on Use of, oh boy, Center for Research Use and Education, I believe at the University oh, of yeah. Delaware. Uh, and, you know, they're kind of building up a course um, for knowledge brokers. And so Carrie and I were working on some of those tools that you mentioned, you know, like know when to find useful research fast and turning that into kind of an offline short assignment um, that that people could use to work through it. Um, but it's it's funny, the, uh, the place in the field that I personally have seen it closest up is a friend of mine um, who I gave the book to her and she's a teacher, she's a high school department chair. And she, so I gave her the book and then she was like, oh, I have this problem I need to solve. And so I decided I would just use your book <laughs> to solve my problem, which was uh, super flattering. And yes. then we had a kind of series of ongoing conversations about how it went. Um, that was that was pretty illuminating <laughs> for me, but thinking about how it kind of fits into this whole of, you know, she, she came with a very specific problem about the district had given her this goal about maximizing AP course taking. And she had a problem, which is she's doing next year's schedule and figuring out all of these logistics about how can she make it work. And she's like, oh, well, this is a problem and seems like a common problem. People talk a lot about AP course taking. Um, let me see what research says and kind of going down this, this path through the book of um, let me look to outside research. Guess what? There isn't really a lot of outside research on exactly this. There's research on other stuff. There's research on who takes AP and what places offer AP and, you know, but um, these things that really kind of get more to implementation. So, um, so kind of work through some stuff with her about uh, our secret goal for the book is that it, leads up to making you want to use your own data, honestly. Um, it's, I guess it's not a big secret uh, that, you know, 
outside research is great. And especially if you're not just looking at a single study, but if there's some an area where there's consensus uh, and you can get this consensus view, but there is a lot of problems of practice that are just very specific. And if you really want to get into using evidence for those, you want to be looking to your own data. Um, hearing you talk reminded me of when I, uh, my dissertation long, long time ago, uh, I was pushed and promoted to, um, to use our own data in, you know, related to my question. And it completely changed the narrative. It completely changed the narrative. Now, you mentioned ESSA earlier, and I, I want to, I, I really appreciated this in chapter four. I'm going to read you this quote and ask you to expand a little bit on it. Um, as we will show, ESSA's view of evidence is narrow, technical, and rigid, the opposite of the common sense framework described throughout this book. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the common sense framework compared to ESSA? Because I, I really appreciated this part of the book, uh, specific thinking through the lens of an educator in the field. Yeah, um, I mean, I think the common sense framework is you're, you're coming with some kind of problem of practice uh, and, you know, or some area that you'd like to improve in. And so you wanna kind of think through what's going on, kind of diagnostic questions um, that, could be answered with what researchers would call more descriptive research rather than causal research. Um, or you have an implementation problem and you have some, you know, implementation research could be useful. Or you could also have questions that uh, are really kind of like about what's the impact of this particular intervention? How does it cause differences in outcomes for students? And it's really just that last bucket that ESSA addresses. So um, we really think that there is a broader role for using data uh, and research than you see just in ESSA. And also there's just tons of questions where um, the type of evidence that meets that ESSA criteria, it just doesn't answer them. Um, so we want people to think more broadly. And then the other thing about ESSA is that it has these tiers of evidence. Um, with you know strong, moderate, promising, demonstrates a rationale, uh, and from what we were hearing from the field, those tiers of evidence were stressing people out. Uh, and you know, like, is it better to be in the top tier versus the middle tier? And honestly, for most of the time, for most schools, it it's not a requirement. So there's this all this technical language about what would make you be in one tier versus the other um, that most of the time is actually not binding for schools anyway. There's, there's this chapter, um, build evidence by learning from your own data, which kind of follows exactly the, uh, what you were just describing. And, you know, you, you talk about the process of plan, do, study, and act. So can you maybe just uh, briefly unpack this chapter a little bit because I, I will tell you, I, number one, I, I really can appreciate the concept of using data to build your own story and narrative to resonate, um, not just with educators, but also the community. So can you tell us more about just uh, that chapter? Because I thought that was a, it was, it was a powerful one. Yeah, so there's, um 
So we think we may have two separate chapters. One is about using the data and one is about kind of interpreting it and helping other people understand it. And uh, you, you might think that sometimes you're using data kind of in private <laughs> and you wanna know the answer to a question and then you have um, how you're using data to tell a more public story. Uh, and you know, people like a story. So it's always good uh, if you can sort of start with something specific, put a face on things, um, and then kind of make the case for how representative is this? Because that's kind of the question that people have. If you hear a story, you know, you if you think of good journalism, you read a newspaper article and it starts with this is the story of a particular person and then telling you, actually, this is the case for lots of people. So um, that, that's the basic idea of the data story. And then in terms of working with the data, um, we really, there the point is just kind of about making comparisons and not just a before and after comparison because sometimes other things change over time, but you sure. know, how are you, which groups are you comparing to each other? Or um, are you comparing different grades? Are you comparing different schools within your district? Thinking about the comparisons that are really going to make sense for the question you have. So it's all very question driven. And when you think of it that way, um, that you have a question that comes from your own problem or your own planning needs, then of course it becomes very unlikely that someone else has already designed research that speaks exactly to your question and that, that motivates your own use of data. You know, Nora, you and I talked about this uh, before we started um, the leader chat, and it is that we, uh, most of our systems and structures to support leaders are roundtable processes, right? We, where leaders help leaders, we say circles are better than rows, and the concept is that we think the collective wisdom can really make a dramatic difference if people are willing to kind of lean into that process, which is sometimes um, easier said than done. But if you and I were sitting at a round table with educational leaders um, uh, around the table with us, what would be you know, your, your pragmatic advice for them right now based upon your expertise, this book, and then also what you see in the field? One of the things we talk about in the book a bit is this, ask yourself, how do we know? And I think that is one kind of entry point to doing this work um, because it might make you realize often we don't know, um, we're assuming this. This is the way we've always done things or, you know, this seems likely, but how do we know that it's this rather than some other thing that's causing it? So I think um, that is, sort of the the starting point and if you find yourself asking how do we know you know if you're making a consequential decision something where you can spend more than one minute um but honestly thinking you know when we design exercises for our own students we think about you know what's like a lunch break research task so not thinking this is a dissertation thinking this is something that you could turn around pretty quick um and then at that moment thinking, okay, well, does this, does my plan rest on some assumption? And if so, how can I figure out if that assumption is true? Um, you know, and just kind of 
thinking that through in a way that is specific to whatever the case is. And sometimes maybe you would look to your own data. Sometimes maybe you would want to know what have the experiences of other districts been with a particular strategy. Um, and that's where outside research comes in. Um, but I, I think starting by asking the question is really the most important part, because if you haven't identified questions, then it doesn't feel like there's any real benefit to using data or using research. Nora, I, uh, I really appreciate not just the, the book, as I've said, but being able to talk to you about this today. I thank you for your time. Um, you know, I know we'll make sure to circle back and, uh, and you know, thank your um, thank your buddy, Carrie, as well. Um, but we really appreciate not just what you've put out there uh, for educators, but um, also for this conversation. This, is, um, this has been a blast. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me. All right, Nora. Will you be well? Thank you. Take care. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we appreciate this opportunity to talk with Nora because um, what attracted me to this discussion, like I said initially, and I've said several times throughout uh, the last half hour, um, I, I, I worry about educational leaders. Um, and I also think that leaders, when they do their job really well, it's when they're being thoughtful. Thoughtful specific to the needs of their students and their community, and you need to use data to be able to interpret and understand know how to move forward. And I think um, this common sense evidence text really helps us. So ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this leader chat as much as I have. We appreciate your noble work. Be well.